Well, hearing that report from our, our dear family, the Roberts, leads us to this incredible passage in Genesis chapter 11, a passage of, in so many ways, what may not appear at the front end, a mission, but the reality is there's a mission that is embedded within the midst of this passage. What looks like a failed mission of trying to build a city that ultimately at the very end of this section is left off and remains unbuilt, what we find is that the mission of God is accomplished in what looks like the failure of human effort. For the sake of time this morning, we're simply going to look at Genesis 11, 1 through 9. You have printed for you all the way to verse 26, but we're just going to read through verses 1 to 9 and focus our attention in the first part of this passage. This is Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are all one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they will propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their languages, so that they may not understand one another's speech." So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all of the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God We'll stand together. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we just simply thank you for this word that will stand forever. This word that constantly speaks throughout the ages and never fails. One that we can completely trust and even this day have our lives founded upon. We would ask that you would come and meet us now in this word and teach us marvelous things from it. And indeed, encourage us in the strength of your might to be readied for the work of mission, for the work that you have called us to as your people. Come now and glorify yourself. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you may have seen, not too long ago, it was a few few months back now in Time Magazine, an article that was written about what were the greatest cities in the world. There were lots of different measurements by which greatness were accounted for in the midst of that article. It could be by architecture, the buildings, the organization of the cities. It could be by its culture, its commitment to the arts. There was a category even named Buzz, 
Was there a buzz in the city? Was there energy? Was there vibrancy? Was there life? How was the food and drink? What was the quality of its life? How was it looked at from the world's status on the outside? Various measurements were given. And the top three cities mentioned in that Time Magazine article will come as no surprise to most of you here. Number one is New York City. 53 out of potentially 60 points were given to New York City as the greatest city on the face of the earth. Number two was the city of London, gaining 50 points out of potential 60 points for its greatness in all of these categories. Number three, Paris. Paris, France, getting 48 points out of a potential 60 points. These three great cities. I'm sad to say, out of the 100 or so cities listed, Nashville was not on the list. And yet, we do live in a great city, a tremendous place in which to live. We love cities. Throughout history, cities have been so important to the livelihood of cultures, whether we're going back to the the ancient Greek metropolises or we're thinking about the eternal city of Rome. Cities have a significant place in the history and the vibrancy of mankind, In the passage that's before us in Genesis chapter 11, we actually have a centerpiece of almost what we might call the lead character of this particular story is a city. And the effort that is being put forth is the building of a city. The strength of this city, what this city evokes, what this city says, what this achievement of building of this city actually means for those who would live there. All of these are the focal points of Genesis chapter 11. But what we actually see is that inside of the focus of this city and the building of this city, the city known as Babel, is that there's another city that's being built. And in fact, this is a tale of two cities, if you will. The city of man, which these Babelites are seeking to build, and the city of God, whom God comes down and begins to spread throughout all of the earth. This city, this city of God, this city of man, played out here in the theater of Genesis chapter 11 verses 1 through 9. And what I want you to see in this passage is these two cities at play. I want you to see first the city that we're trying to build, the city that men are trying to build. It's all over the passage here in Genesis chapter 11. But then I want you to see the city that God comes down to build, the city that God comes down to build, the city we're trying to build. And then I want you to see the city that God comes down to build. And we want to start by looking at the city we're trying to build. And you see it right here in verse 4. It's kind of the focal point of, of this text. Come, let us build ourselves a city with its top in the heavens. They wanted to build a great city, these Babylites, as they come down from the mountains of Ararat, following the flood. They come down now to the plains of Shinar and they want to build for themselves a great city. 
Now, the idea of a city was well underway by this point in Genesis chapter 11. We have hints of cities even in the previous chapters of the book of Genesis. But it's at this point in human history that cities really begin to take off. And they begin to take off for the reason that's given there in verse 3 of the text. There is a new building technology that has begun to take off. Look at verse 3. They said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. This is new architectural advancement. This is building technology. This is the latest thing at Home Depot. We no longer have to be next to the mountains in order to quarry stone. We no longer have to be up high in order to protect ourselves from enemies. We've learned now with mud and with other materials to put them together and compact them together and to burn them in a kiln, to put them in a furnace, to make them strong. We have a tar, a mortar, by which they can be solidified. So we don't have to be on mountains anymore. We can go down to the plains of Shinar. They've gone down to Mesopotamia, a place that you wouldn't normally build. They've gone down there and they're going to build because they can build walls now. And they can build, as you can see here, towers by which they can watch. They can build a tower so great that it can extend into the heavens. Uh, there's something of a great confidence of which this text has within it. We have a new technology. We have a printing press, as say the, uh, the fort, late 1400s, early 1500s had with the advent of the Gutenberg printing press. We have a new way of which making the world more accessible and making the world flourish. We have an internet. We have all kinds of things that can make the world greater and better, more efficient, more effective. And there's something of a triumphal spirit. Come let us make bricks. Come let us build a city, verse 4. The language is actually in the Hebrew, a grammar for exclamation. It's this, this spirit of confidence. It's this, we have the resolve, we have the gifts, we have the technological know-how. What's there to stop us? Let's go build a city. Now, there's a problem, though, in the midst of this confidence, within the height of this, this text. The problem, though, is what's well, not with the work of building. We're all called to build. We're all building in some way, shape, or form. Maybe not cities, maybe not homes. We might not be carpenters or architects or builders in here, but we're all building a life. We're all in one sense putting one stone upon another in our relationships, in our jobs, and in our various callings. We're all builders. And the reason we're builders is because we've been made to be builders. God was a builder. He's called the maker of heaven and earth. We've been made in his image. And what are we called to do? To be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. This is advancement. This is progress. This is a good thing. It's not the problem is not with the building. The problem is not even, believe it or not, even for those of us who love the country, like myself, grew up in the country, on land, not really great, in inner cities, just not so much my thing. But the problem is not the city. The problem is not even what they want to build here. The city advancement that's here. We actually find in the pages of Scripture that cities become critical to the nature in which God advances his own kingdom. Won't it be the people of Israel who will indeed build with God's help and power of the Spirit the holy city of Jerusalem? And won't they build, as it were, a tall tower in the very middle of that great holy city called the temple, a place that will reach upon that temple mount higher than any of the other places and the buildings? In some ways, we have something 
something similar that's being described here. The problem is not the city. What's the problem? The problem is why they're building the city. It's the reason for which they're building the city. It's the why that they build. Notice why they build. Look at verse 4. Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower. There it is. Come, let us build for ourselves. This is a city for themselves. This is not a city for God. This is not a city for ministry purposes, for the flourishing and the blessing of all peoples. This is a city for themselves. There's a selfish inclination right at the very heart. Well, what does it mean to build a city for yourself? Well, he unpacks it. Look at later there in verse 4. Come and let us build for ourselves a city with its top in the heavens. And notice, let us make a name for ourselves. Now, what does it mean to make a name for yourself? It's a phrase that we, we use still commonly today. And the way in which we use it commonly today is the same in the way the idiom is intended here in the Hebrew in verse 4 to make a name for ourselves. It, it means to come into our own, to have our own standing, to earn our own place, to gain, as it were, our own identity, to come into our own fame. Someone told me yesterday that Meghan Markle has come into her own fame. She's become a household name. Many of us in this room wouldn't even know who I was talking about if it weren't for the royal wedding yesterday. But we know exactly who she is. More than we ever thought we'd ever know about who she is. Because of this coming into her own name. This coming into her own fame. And when we talk about making a name for yourself, notice the language. It's language of cobbling it together or earning it. Uh, normally, when we think of making our name for ourselves, we're talking about proving ourselves, our worth and our, our value and our strength. In very many ways, we're building a life by trying to make for ourselves a name. Some of us in this room, we build our, our sense of identity, our sense of name by the way we look. Uh, by the achievements that it is that we've accomplished, by the job that we have, by how much money we make, by who it is that we know and the names that we can drop. There's a personal element to building our own names. In fact, if we listen to the voice in our own heads that so constantly teaches us and tells us that we're not enough and we need to do more and, and we didn't actually accomplish the early promise that was upon our life and now we need to achieve more and go further, that sort of voice rises up within us in order for us to be driven to make for ourselves a name. We want to be known. There's something personal that we're often trying to feel by the things that we do. But there's also something social. We don't want to just do something and achieve something. We want others to recognize that we did something and achieved something. That's why we love graduation, right? It's the end of a matter of achievement where everybody's going to hear your name spoken in front of the throng. And you're going to be given a piece of paper with your name on it that says you did something and people are going to throw parties and they're going to rejoice and they're going to clap and they're going to say you're awesome and you're going to be the next president of the United States. This is why we do these things with regards to social recognition. There's a personal longing for there to be a name, but there's a social need to be affirmed in that greatness. 
But the text is getting beyond those two inclinations to get underneath, we might even say get to the underbelly of the motivation of building this city called Babel, and it's the spiritual dimension. There's a personal dimension, there's a social dimension, but there's a spiritual dimension. This is at the very core. And this is an impulse to want to be our own God, to be in control of our own identity. You see, to make a name for yourself in the context of Genesis chapter 11 is a fundamental rejection of the name that God had already given to mankind. You remember back in Genesis chapter 2, the very first task that God gave to Adam? It's before Eve was even made. We're preparing for the moment of, of Eve's creation. He's told that his responsibility is to look through all of the animals and to have them come to him, and he's supposed to do what? Name them. To give them specific names. Now, why did he do that? Because the act of naming is an act of authority. It's the act of authority. It says, I have power over something. It was an exercise of dominion. It was to say that Adam was God's vice regent over creation. The animals weren't over Adam. Adam was over the animals. How do we know? Because he named them. Now, it works the same way here, doesn't it? Who, Who names children? Do children name children? Do pets name pets? No, their owners do. And parents name children. They exercise the power or the authority and it's exercised in the display of, giving of a label, a moniker, or a name. Now, now we we know that we rebuff against this, right? I mean, most of us have gone through that phase in late elementary, junior high, or high school where we decided we don't want to be called by the name that we were given by our parents, we're going to be given, a, we want another name, even if we're going to tweak it just a little bit. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's an alternate. You know, my name is Nathan, and somehow during junior high school, I became Nate. Just because I needed to give some shape to who it is that I wanted to be and who I wanted to become. It meant something to be able to get for myself some will or some identity to achieve, in a very real sense, something for myself. That moment a child is, what are they doing? They're trying to make a name for themselves. They're exercising their will. They're saying, I'm out from under that terrible name that my parents gave me. And now with my new name, I will become what it is that I want to be. Do you see, this is the city that we're all trying to build. The city of Babel is is just simply a picture of an aspiration to make a name for themselves. The achievement of building the city was in order that they might have a name. They might personally look at the city and say, I'm valuable. I'm worthwhile. Look what I did. And everybody else around me who helped me build it will all say to each other, we're valuable and we're great. And we will, through having named this city and having made this city and having made ourselves famous in the eyes of the world, we will know then that we have claimed our own identity. We will be, as it were, God. You see, this has been the predicament of human condition from the very beginning. Wasn't this exactly what Eve did when she ate the forbidden fruit? 
when Adam there with Eve in the temptation were drawn out from the serpent who said, listen, I know God has told you this is what you are, but actually if you could reach for more than what you are, you can become more. Cross that boundary, build that tower, eat that fruit. Make up your own name for who it is that you are. Do you see one of the, the biggest temptations and struggles of the culture in which we live in and one of the ones that we're most susceptible to in the 21st century, and this is really true for us who are growing up in the present generation that we're in, is the world tells you, you can make your own identity. You can be whoever it is that you want to be. It's all about who you want to be. The fact of the matter is it's not about who you want to be. It's about who God has made you to be. It's about the design, not about your definition. It's about who God has called you to be, not what you're trying to name yourself. And the struggle is that we would be named by our achievements or named by our looks or named by who we know or named by how much money we have or how much success that we gain. And none of those things are your name. None of those things are your identity, but all of those things we're cobbling together to build, as it were, a sense of value, a sense of worth. And at the very center is a rejection of the name that God has given to you. For the name that God had given to Adam and Eve was image of God, reflector of God. To be fruitful and multiply in the same spirit of which he had multiplied and was fruitful in the world. They were to reflect God. The calling in the name upon your life was to be like God in reflection. Not to try to subvert God. Not to try to replace God. But to instead in humble submission to the call of God reflect him with all of his beauty and with all of his glory. Do you see this is the city we're trying to build. Do you recognize it? Do you recognize it on the evening news? Do you recognize it in the books that we're reading? In the magazines that we're reading? Do you recognize it in your own heart? This is the city that we think we're building. This is the life that we think where real value comes from. But secondly, I want you to see that in the midst of the city we're trying to build, we see the city that God comes down to build. Look at what's there in, in verse five. And the Lord came down. It's fascinating. The, the whole image so far through verse four has been, we are trying to go up. We're trying to build a name that'll get us to heaven. We're trying to get a tower that will be a skyscraper. We're trying to look at a skyline like New York or London or Paris. We're trying to look out and say, we're valuable because of what it is we've done, because of what it is we've achieved. We've been able to break in, as it were, to the heavens. We've been able to scrape the sky with the things that we've been built. And what we see here in verse five is that the city that God comes to build is not about us building up, but it's about him coming down. It's about him coming down. And notice what happens when he comes down. It says, and the Lord came down, verse 5, to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now, there's just a wee bit of sarcasm in this verse. Notice the language. They're building a great tower. It's huge. And so God comes down to try to see it. I want you to picture God with his magnifying glass leaning into the earth, kind of looking through the magnifying glass. Wow, what a tower. What an amazing tower you have built. That's the language of the text. He's come down to see it. That's not that God didn't know. It's not that he couldn't see from afar. He's not nearsighted. 
You know, it's not the issue of the text. The issue of the text is to say, we are so full of ourselves. Look at what we've built. It's amazing. And God goes, I can barely see it. I can barely see it. Ed Welch wrote a book a few years ago, great book. I urge you, encourage you to pick it up. He says, when people are big and God is small. That was the title. That's Genesis 11. When people are big and God is small. We're so full. We're like, I graduated. I'm amazing. Right? And God, you know, God, we're told by the prophet Isaiah, he threw the heavens and the stars into place like a tent. Like it, it was like setting up a tent for him. He says, the inhabitants of the world are like grasshoppers in the sight of God. You see, there's a greatness in the way this text is presenting to us the nature of who our God is. And what what he shows us is the city that he has come to build is one where he comes down. And notice the first thing he does when he comes down. He gives us perspective. He gives us perspective. This whole passage has been about big tower, huge city, we're great. And now in verse five, as God shows up on the scene, everything that we've done looks really small. Starts looking really tiny. At the root of the problem of Babel was that they thought themselves to be big and God to be small. And then look at verse six. Behold, they are one people and they all have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. We have here from the text of scripture, not God going, oh boy, they are really powerful. I'm just not sure I'm gonna be able to do anything about this if they just keep going the way that they're going. No, that's not the point of the text. God's concern in this text is about humanity, not about his ability. His concern in this text is if they continue to harden themselves in this way, if they continue to grow and to become successful to the things that they put their minds to and they continue to put themselves in the center of their own universe trying to make a name for themselves and disobeying my commands, then what will continue to spread is the violence, the strife, the conflict, and the wickedness that the world has become known by that led to the flood in the first place. Do you remember Genesis chapter 6? Every thought and intention of the heart of man was evil continually. And now we have lots of people, evil continually, working in close proximity together, being highly successful. Is there anything scarier than highly successful wickedness? Is there anything scarier than brilliant wickedness? Advancing technology, scaling buildings, brought together debauchery. God says, if this continues, this will continue to destroy the world. And so we see God in the context of this saying, this is not good. Now, let me me show you something. Notice what's not good. They're one people with one language, with one will and force to do wickedness. That's what's not good in this passage. Now, here's just, I think, very very important because we live in a world that just says unity is always great. Like, if we could just be unified on every single front, that would be amazing. If we can just be unified even about not being unified, then, then let's just stay with that because that'll be, that'll be a good thing. God actually says the kind of unity that's in this passage is evil. It's evil. 
The problem is that they're one people with one language, with one force of will. They're constantly in a society that moves from one degree of wickedness to the next as they continue to labor towards making a name for themselves and trying to replace God. Do you see the text is teaching us that unity and the goodness of that unity depends on what it is that unifies you. Friends, racists are unified around their racism. Terrorists are highly unified around their terror. I'm amazed sometimes at even watching on television screen and having been in some places where this was true, how angry mobs can be very unified in their anger. The question is not the goodness of the unity. The question is what unifies you and does it accomplish the righteousness of God? The unity that's in the midst of this passage is a unity that God actually comes down to destroy. He comes down to destroy. Verses 7-8, he comes down and he says, Come, let us go down, speaking of the Godhead, coming together, and confuse their language. Why? So that they might not understand one another's speech. So that the Lord dispersed them from over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Now this is a beautiful picture of how it is that God interacts with the city of man. The way God builds his city is he starts by unbuilding our city. He starts by unbuilding our city. Have you ever noticed this about your own life? Is that if you're going to grow into the kingdom that God is building, you're going to have to have your kingdom unbuilt. It is just the way it works. If you just go, I just want my life to stay wonderfully happy and hold on to everything that I have and serve God. You'll notice that it won't work. You can't serve God and mammon. Jesus makes it very clear in Matthew chapter 5. You're going to have to give up things. You're going to have to put things on the altar. You're going to have to go through pain and suffering. You're going to have to be challenged in order to walk into the kingdom. And so one of the gracious things that God does here is he often enters into our life by unbuilding our kingdoms in order to build his kingdom. And that's what we see going on here. He comes down and he touches them. And in his touching, he confuses the languages of mankind. Now, as he does this, he is graciously kind. This is certainly a judgment of the Lord, but it's a gracious judgment. God is saving the people from themselves. He can see that as their wickedness gets greater and as their unity continues to get forged and as their city becomes more and more triumphant, what they're going to happen is more and more trust in themselves. They're going to be more and more calloused in their wickedness. They're going to be more and more seared in their conscience. They're going to be less and less open to the redemption that's going to come through God. They're going to feel less and less needy. Do you see, some of the worst things that happen in our life are our successes. Do you believe that? Not the successes themselves, but what the successes do to our hearts. When we're successful over and over and over and over again, when we're victorious over and over and over and over again, what begins to happen? We begin to become self-sufficient, self-reliant. We begin to treat ourselves like we're the center of our universe. Like all we need is us. One of the coaches of one of our kids' teams this week emailed us to tell us that we were in first place but we still have three games left in the season. We've done incredibly well. 
We've got three games left in the season. And he said to us, don't tell your child. Don't tell your child. Why? Why would, why would you? I mean, why shouldn't we just rejoice over that? Because <laughs> he knows what will happen. He knows what will happen inside of them. He knows what will happen to them. As they get excited and as they become self-reliant and as they begin to think, we've got it. Pride goes before a fall, the Bible tells us. And that's exactly what we see in the context of this passage. We need to be saved from ourselves by God unbuilding our kingdoms. And oftentimes he does that by causing us to fail. And it's the best thing that ever happened to us. Was to lose, was to be unbuilt, was to be broken, was to fall short. Because it's in the brokenness where the light of His grace begins to break in. Do you see? That's really what's going on in this passage as He scatters people throughout the world. They wanted to stay together. They didn't want to answer the call to go into all the world. But God sends them out through the confusing of the language. And what this really does is it tells us that God is building a city against the city that we're trying to build. He's unbuilding ours and he's building his own. Despite the fact they left off building the project and they go into all of the world. And we think to ourselves, okay, now, now it's going to be really hard. I mean, we've got Mandarin, we've got Spanish, we've got English, we've got these Akkadian languages, we've got all of these various languages, we've got all of these people groups, we're now going to be scattered all over the world. The consolidation of the power in unity and in languages no longer going to be able to be achieved? What's going to happen? Are we simply going to become divided? Are we simply going to be separated now from one another? Are we never going to be able to be unified? Is there no way for the human race to actually walk in lockstep and in locked arm together? And the Bible says, no, I've got more to this story. And it's the very Sunday that we're celebrating today. You see, in Acts chapter 2, what we see is a picture of the very reversal that happened here at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. See, Genesis chapter 11 was the confusing of all of the languages, right? Sending everybody the scatters of the world. You know what we're told in Acts chapter 2 at the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? We're told that the then known world had come to Jerusalem. They'd come to the city. And there they gathered, and as the Holy Spirit fell, Peter and the apostles began speaking what? In all kinds of tongues. All kinds of languages. And it says each was hearing in their own language the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Each was hearing in their own language the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's what I want you to see. It's very important. The, the problem is not that we speak different languages or that we have diverse cultural centers or that we have a variety of ethnicities or social backgrounds. That's not the problem. The question is what brings us together? So what unifies us? Is it the building of a Babel? Is it our pride? Is it our trying to usurp the role of God? Or is it in receiving a new name from God through the preaching of the gospel? Do you see, that's what Acts 2 is all about. When Peter preaches... In Acts 2, 17 to 21, here's what he preaches. In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters, they shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And it shall come to pass, verse 21, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
Do you see, friends, we don't have to make a name for ourselves because we have been given the very name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to achieve anything to make a name. Why? Because Jesus has achieved all that we need in order to be welcomed into the heavenly places. We don't have to be in a mutually glad approving society. Because the, hev- the God of heaven and earth approves of us and welcomes us into his presence. We don't have to be marked by what it is that we look like because we are gloriously robed in the righteousness of Jesus. We're remarkably beautiful. Not because we are beautiful in and of ourselves, but because we've been given a name that is beautiful. In that very passage, what Peter says is we must repent and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because in his identity, we become the people that we are always meant to be. And it's why at the end of time, in Revelation 7 and in Revelation 21, we're told that every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation will come together and they will come to sing, worthy is the lamb, worthy is the one whose name brings us together. You see, what brings us together is not because we're white, or black. It's not because we're rich or poor, not because we're just in one place with one worldview, with one cultural center or one social background. What brings us together is the name of Jesus. That's the unification of which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, we're told in the scriptures, at the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this passage today is asking us the question, how is it that you're building If you really look over your life, are you constantly undone when you fail? Are you constantly prideful when you succeed? Are you constantly given over to worry about what other people think? Are you constantly consumed about how it is that you're coming off? Then you're living by the name of Babel. But are you confident in the name of Jesus? Do you see the beauty of the righteousness of Christ? Are you welcomed into his achievement? Do you know that when you go out and fall on your face tomorrow, you're fully loved and accepted in Christ? And do you let that love and accepted motivate you unto greater achievement, not for your own name, but for the name and the glory of Jesus? Then you know who Jesus is. That's the name that you live by. That's the city you're a part of because in Revelation 21, we're told that what comes out of heaven comes down from heaven. You don't build it. God builds it and it comes down out of heaven and it's called the holy city of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. And nobody builds their way into this city. Jesus has built this city and he builds you into it through faith and through embrace of his name. So believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, how are you building? Are you building to make a name? Are you building in wickedness, coddling selfishness at the center of your heart? Or are you building by the light of the name of Jesus Christ? Are you building in the freedom and the joy of what it means to know that Christ has already built his city? And he says to you, welcome. Father in heaven, we say, praise your name that you have built such a city as this. We could never build a city. All of our cities are Babel. But your city is Jerusalem, the holy city that comes down out of heaven, adorned, more beautiful than the bride we watched yesterday on TV, more glorious than any ceremony we've ever seen, is the city of Jerusalem, your church, the people of God, 
whom you have given your name. Come and let us know this, believe it, and live according to it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.